We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. On the other line is Dr. Winfield Bevins. Aloha, brother. How are you? Hey, Elahu, doing good. How about you? Yes, I'm well. I'm glad that we connected. Um, it's like sunny, and I've got a Mai Tai in front of me, and you've got like a hot chocolate, and there's a blizzard, right? Yeah, we had a uh, not just an ice storm, but a uh, freezing rain, and then snow came on top of it. So, yeah. <laughs> That'll get you. Uh, Dr. Bevins earned his doctorate of ministry from Southeastern Seminaries, currently pursuing second PhD at University of Aberdeen. He's a church planner and missiologist and a voice for ancient liturgy and a professor and visiting professor all over the place. He's also a visual artist and a champion for the arts in that he's he started a slew of galleries and studios, which is cool. Um, he's the author. He's the author of almost a dozen books, including and I'm going to name name four or five here. One is Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation. Next one is Our Common Prayer. A Field Guide to the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, next one is Living Room Liturgy, A Book of Worship for the Home, which, by the way, we just got a rabbit, and I think is like the first page. We prayed the prayer for a new pet, which was awesome. And then uh, he recently released a book we'll discuss today called Simply Anglican, An Ancient Faith for Today's World. Anglican Compass 2020. By the way, the good people at Angl anglicancompass.com are offering a copy of the book to one of our listeners. So to, to enter, just subscribe to this podcast and then let us know you did via Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Brother, why are so many young, restless, and reformed folk jumping ship to Anglicanism or, you know, liturgy? What itch does Anglicanism and liturgy scratch that doesn't elsewhere get satiated? Yeah, I, you know, I like to say I'm you know, my journey kind of took me into Anglicanism. Uh, it's much broader than that. And a lot of the resources and a lot of the work I'm doing around this, you know, I'm not trying to make Anglicans, um, but I think the draws really, it's it's a hunger for formation. It's a hunger for kind of a connection to the larger church, uh, connection to the historic roots of the Christian faith. Um, but I, I think it's kind of this blend of just a hunger for formation. It's more than, you know, one of the things I, I go into in Ever Ancient, Ever New in the end, I talk about this liturgical matrix where theology alone will not save you. Liturgy alone won't form you and experience alone won't form you. But I think good liturgy that's grounded in Orthodox theology and an encounter with the the risen Christ kind of brings all of these elements together that's missing in so much of, uh, let's say, kind of the, say, the Reformed or Evangelical movements. Um, you, so, I mean, there's a lot more I could kind of say about that, but that's kind of my quick, maybe, elevator speech there. What have you seen, like, specifically, I mean, I know you've done a lot of interviews and, like, research, like, what, especially of those young, restless, Reformed-type folks, those people who yep. ended up, like, soteriologically buying into like what Calvin has to say and sort of like good rich theology yep. what what scratch like I don't know if you can think of any specific what yeah. things just weren't hit, getting hit 
Yeah, I think um, what I would say is, again, if, if you're talking, your audience is more kind of the young, restless, reform crowd. I've got a, if, if you look online, I've got a kind of semi-academic piece called Young, Restless, Liturgical, you know, kind of, because really you have this, this movement among young adults that, you know, it's kind of like the U2 song, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you know, maybe, you know, I've encountered a lot of young adults that said they came out of Pentecostal or different backgrounds and they kind of were drawn to the neo-reform movement. You know, they joined an Acts 29 church back in the early 2000s and they, man, they loved Driscoll and they started reading Piper and, you know, it's like, woo. And then they found like, wow, this is, it's stimulating intellectually, but there must be more. Yes, bro. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Come on now. Like I'll I'll get Pentecostal on you real quick. So, um, what, what I've discovered, I literally just, I've got in a chapter that's coming out in a book um, next year on kind of what I call, when we think of the Reformation, we think of it as a theological Reformation, and it was, but in reality, it was actually a liturgical Reformation, because it was about um, giving ordinary people access to the Eucharist. And one of the things that very few people have looked at um, and I say that because I, I literally just researched this and wrote on it. Uh, and again, it's coming out in a chapter in a book next year. Um, it's being edited right now. Uh, I call the Reformation a liturgical reformation. And what was fascinating was I was, it started, started me, I actually started looking at the Reformation, like what, what caused evangelicals and kind of modern kind of low church evangelicals to lose kind of the sense of liturgy and I started with the Reformation. It really wasn't the Reformation. It was the radical reformers, Puritans via um, the Great Awakening with this emphasis on kind of the further you go meets, um, you know, kind of this radical individualism, this kind of detraditioning. Um, but when you look at the reformers, Calvin, um, Luther in particular, they were very liturgical um, they were highly liturgical and sacramental. I mean, Luther and Calvin, I mean, they continued to use the language of the mass. Um, even Zwingli, they, they actually, Zwingli actually kept the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria was actually a part of his liturgy. Like, uh, like what do you do with that? And so, um, again, they had this deep sense that they were recovering um, the, the faith and theology of the early church. Uh, and they they were innovating with liturgy in a, in a way that was kind of getting back beyond kind of the high Middle Ages, uh, kind of a lot of the corruptions that had crept into. Basically, if you think about the, the 95 Theses, what had happened was the ordinary people had lost access to the Eucharist. And so the priests had turned their back on the ordinary people. There were the high altar, you know, there was this increasing separation and in many ways, the Reformation was about giving people um, access to the Eucharist, to the liturgy, prayer. You know, a lot of times we think of theology and um, the Bible translations. Um, what was significant about the, the Anglican liturgy, for instance, what was revolutionary about it was here you had the 16, you know, the, the King James Bible, you have the, the Bible in the language of the people. What happens with the prayer book, the prayers are in the language of the people. So imagine you're in England, English Reformation, your entire life you had never heard worship in your own language. So what Cramner does with the Book of Common Prayer, and this is why why the draw to Anglicanism, why is this significant, is he translates 
um, the prayers. He takes these ancient prayers. He cuts out all the, the added on stuff and really kind of takes this reformational twist. Um, so the prayer book spirituality. So you have not just systematic theologies, um, but you have uh, formational liturgies. I could keep going on, so I'll, I'll pause there. I'm going to I'm gonna edit this part out. I got to close my window. You hear that guy cutting the grass? Of course. Ah. <laughs> Look at the palm trees in the background. Oh, man, it is. They are closed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly, I can't hear it, so I'm... Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hey, good response here. Okay. <clears throat> you said, quote, people are looking for depth and substantial depth, end quote. But but I think many reform people would say that they offer this, like this, they they have this like theologically, and you kind of you kind of reference that. I mean, that's what drew so many to the tradition in the last 20 years. And yeah. I think they would also, as the Anglicans say, that they too are part of the ancient tradition with yeah. roots all the way back. So I don't know if you could hit on that one. Yeah. So again, what I mean by depth and maybe you know, just unpacking it a little more is beyond just theology. What good liturgy is, it's theology in motion. Um, it's, it's you know, you know what happens is, again, with the neo-liturgical movement, oftentimes you have, you know, you got good theology, but then the worship's like, what the heck's going on here? You know, and so Calvin actually, in Calvin's Geneva, he kind of tried to set it up in a way that they had the Eucharist every single week, and people kind of fought him on it. And so again, if you if you trace Calvin and Luther's, they're going back to the early sources. They actually sought to recover the worship practices of the early church, which had weekly regular celebration of the Eucharist. So it was word and table. Um, so real kind of reformed theology. And I think that's the beauty of Anglicanism. It has always been a word and table movement. Whereas some of the other trajectories, um, reformed kind of or neo-reformed trajectories, don't always keep that in integration. So that's what I'm talking about. It's kind of, it's it's a holistic integration where you have theology, you have worship, and 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 ultimately mission. You know, I would connect mission to that as well. Uh, before I, I want to ask you like about sort of your own journey, um, but yeah. before I do, I wanted to like, can you tell us a few? Like everyone knows C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright, but who are some of the other like sort of reformed Anglican guys? I know that like even on your book, like you get endorsements from like Justin Taylor. I think Scott McKnight wrote, I don't know if it was the forward to this one or another one, but can, can you give us some other names of people? I think Craig yeah. Bartholomew is or who else yeah. are people that that we're re reading and we might not realize that well, they're like reformed. Michael Bird, you know, Michael Bird's a new Anglican. You know, he's in Australia. Um, you know, he would kind of identify with this whole movement, but his own journey. You know, I love his his endorsements. Great. He says, uh, you know, Anglicanism, all the cool kids are doing it. But what, <laughs> but what is it? You know, and, you know, he's even got the Anglican fever out in Australia. And so um, what I've seen is, again, it, it you know, for let's say, you know, someone like a Michael Bird or others, myself, you know, you know, reform theology, I think has this, there's, there's an intellectual draw to it. So it's stimulating the mind, but without the, the liturgy, there's a formational element to 
um, the recovery of, and there's a whole movement. There's a resourcement movement, which is, you know, it's a French term. You know, Hans Beresma's uh, an interesting, comes out, I think, the Dutch Reformed, you know, movement. And he personally kind of has embraced kind of a very high church kind of, you know, he teaches in Ashoda, was, was up at Regent. J.I. Packer, you know, the hilarious thing is, you know, a lot of Reformed people don't realize J.I. Packer is actually... Uh, was a classic um, kind of middle of the road Anglican and loved the Anglican tradition. I love this quote. Let me say this. You know, Packer said, Anglicanism embodies, this is J.I. Packer, by the way, Anglicanism embodies the richest, truest, wisest heritage in all of Christendom. <laughs> Boom. All right. There's, and then there's a mic drop right there. Like that's, that's it. Packer, man. Like you can't, if you're reformed and you're saying, I don't know about this liturgy stuff, and I guarantee you Packers on your bookcase, well, you can't get a bigger endorsement than that. So I guess getting into the nitty gritty, what is, man, what's liturgy? Where has it been all my life? And how come like, you know, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. How come I'm, and I'm in Hawaii now, how come sort of just now hearing about this the last, I don't know, three years or something. What, what's going on, bro? Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think that's the experience. You, you have a lot of people that are hungering. They're, they're really, they're wanting to form again. I think what liturgy does is it's kind of like theology in motion. Um, it, it's kind of like you, you know, especially those that are, that have been kind of the young restless reform crowd that has been drawn to kind of reform theology you know, there's this experience of like, wow, I've, I've found, but once you go beyond that, you see that Reformed theology points not to Reformed theology, but to um, the, the great tradition of the church. And that's where Packer and others would be really quick to point you away from themselves and not create some new ism, but to mm. really what we're talking about is affirming what the church has always believed, stand, worshiping in ways that the church has always believed. And so uh, I, I really do think we're in the midst of a renaissance, if you will, among probably evangelicals that are there. Huh? How, how, do, how deep do I want to go in the historicity of this? So you have in the 60s. So the evangelical, modern evangelical movement is actually a pretty, pretty recent phenomenon um, in North America. And so what happens is it comes of age in the 60s. All right. So 60s is revolutionary. I mean, there was more than like the sexual revolution and the hippies and all that stuff. You had evangelicals who had almost been on the margins started getting PhDs. So they start teaching. They start founding seminaries. You have the neo-evangelical movement. You have like Wheaton, Fuller's for, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Billy Graham helped start Fuller. You've got Gordon Conwell. You've got the emergence of these evangelical seminaries. And what happens is you have evangelicals getting PhDs and they begin to teach history. They're teaching history. So um, you have this rediscovery of the evangelical place in history. So evangelicals, for the first time in 100 years, are, as a movement, they were almost an anti-traditional movement. All of a sudden in the 60s, they're discovering, wow, we've got a history. We actually belong to the larger church. 
Um, you've got a movement that starts at Wheaton in 1977-ish, the, the Chicago Call, Robert Weber, ever ancient, ever new, you know, he writes, or uh, he kind of coins the phrase, um, gosh, what is it? Um, ancient future faith, rather. You got Thomas Oden, who um, is, a, is a liberal Methodist scholar that has kind of a come to Jesus moment and embraces ancient orthodoxy. And you have all of these scholars across different spectrums that are beginning to recover early church doctrine. Well, the second wave is what I would call is kind of the liturgical wave, because once you kind of see the implications of recovering ancient Orthodox um, doctrine and theology, then you begin to look around and say, is, is there more stuff here? How did the church, how did the church worship? Maybe they have something to say about how our worship is anemic. Uh, maybe they have something to say about ancient practices. Like, I wonder if there are prayers that have been written, <laughs> you know, that have been passed on. And that's that's basically what Cramner did. Again, he takes these ancient prayers and translates them into kind of the, the modern English vernacular for his kind of time period. And so that's what kind of Anglicanism does. And I think that's why, in answer to your question, why now is this, is it a fad? Is this just kind of a passing fad? I, I don't think so. I think it's actually a movement. So I'm actually studying currently with kind of working on the second doctorate at Aberdeen, um, what I call neo-liturgical churches. And the next wave is multicultural churches. So the other stereotype I also get is, one is, is this a trend? Is this a fad? Two, is this a white evangelical kind of Anglo thing? I could, I could take you to some places and show you some churches that would blow your mind, that are embracing, that are having the same experience of recovering Orthodox theology and Orthodox worship, but they're contextualizing it for their context. It's like, I feel like a lot of people, they're jumping ship, going Anglican. Um, some are like rocking the Orthodox thing, like the Eastern Orthodox and some Catholic do you think there's an overlap of why they're like, those are sort of the default three options and maybe even a little bit like of Lutheranism? Yeah, no, that's right. So it's kind of like for some people, it's a recovery of the faith for others. It's the search for the church, the perfect church. Bro, that's pretty it, so if you're looking for the perfect church, guess what? Anglicanism is not for you. It's a mess. I tell everyone like, man, there's no more jacked up church on the planet than, um, but if you're looking for a entry point to, um, to join a faith that affirms um, historic orthodoxy and, and has a worship and a framework mm. uh, that, that can be adapted for 21st century, Anglicanism really has a beautiful model. Mm. And so what leads some into Eastern Orthodoxy or, and I look at one of the chapters I look at um, in Ever Ancient Ever New does that. I interviewed, I mean, dozens of, of young adults have become Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. It, it's really a search for the, the quote, true church, the pure church tradition, the one true church. And for me, that's not my thing. My, my, it's just, for me, and I think many others, it's, it's bigger than that. It's more of uh, a recovery of kind of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. You said, quote, liturgy, I think, I don't know if this is from the book or an interview I heard you, but you said, quote, liturgy might not grow your church, but it will grow your people, end quote. What, like, <laughs> yeah. just trying to get ultra specific. 
Yep. What is the nature of this, like this internal growth? Like, so if liturgy is, you know, following the calendar and these certain prayers and, or, you know, what specific, yep. what scratch is, are these specific things itching? Maybe you can even give us like a, a, a case, you know, a case study. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, again, there's a formational nature, you know, the liturgy is again, the church year, all of this stuff is almost like, I remember when I was a kid, I used to like, I used to love ripping off the face of a watch. You know, my brother would hate it because I would take his watches, you know, the old school watches, you, you know, there's all these cogs and inner workings, you know, on the inside of a watch. And the, the, the liturgy is kind of like that. Um, the weekly liturgy is tied to an annual rhythm that's the church calendar year. There's a lectionary, there's scriptures, there's prayers, there's themes. I call the church year following Jesus throughout the church year. So for instance, if you're a pastor um, and you're used to just kind of preaching topical sermons or, you know, picking out a book of the Bible and then, you know, uh, what happens is there's fatigue that sets in. And, um, you know, in the liturgical tradition, there's a thing called a, called a, a lectionary. And then there's actual seasons of the year that you can follow. And with those seasons are scriptures, themes, resources that are ancient practices. Families, children can follow the church year together. I mean, um, you know, our church, when we were first kind of taking this journey and, you know, we had planted a church and kind of took this journey ourselves. So, uh, you know, this is more than theory. This is my own uh -huh. experience. Um, when we started kind of doing it, it, you know, it started with like a good Friday service. And then the next year we we're like, Hey man, there's this whole season called Lent. It's like 40 days of fasting and prayer and just getting right with Jesus. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. what could be more evangelical than that? What could be more gospel centered than, you know, seeking Jesus's face for yeah. 40 days and, so Easter doesn't just show up. For a lot of Christians who aren't liturgical, it's kind of like maybe the sermon series is on giving. And then all of a sudden, hey, tomorrow's Easter Sunday. And then we're going to jump back into that series. No, there's a holistic framework. And that's what I mean. It's like the words, the prayers, everything, and everyone's worshiping together. That's the point of liturgy too, is it, it, in the Book of Common Prayer is this idea of we're praying in common. You know, I think this was McKnight's kind of idea that he gets into in, um, uh, you know, one of his books, he talks about um, praying with the church. So like the daily office, maybe you're praying with others, but whether you're praying by yourself or whether you're in a room with others, you're still joining your voices with millions of Christians around the world who are praying those same rhythms in those same hours. What happens, so if I'm praying the daily office, what happens when I'm, when I'm doing that or some liturgy, me as just a, like a layman, like, what is my goal? Like you were saying formation. What, what does that mean? Like, what am I, am I growing in my love for God? Are my emotions being affected? Am I being more committed? I'm being more aware. Like what, yeah. what's, what's the cogs? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, the answer is yes. All, you know, um, Again, like, again, we've separate, we disembody, and this is the challenge to be quite honest. Like, if I had a critique of, like, you know, a lot of kind of people in the reform circles that just have kind of this emphasis on just the theology, 
You know, mm. if we just get the theology right, it's 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 almost the same thing as like if I can find the pure church, it's kind of like if I can find the pure doctrine, this wow. this will be it. Wow. And and to if you look at the early church, it wasn't just doctrine. It was you have orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. They're all connected. Mm. This is mm. the inner cogs of the wheel. And so, you know, James K. Smith gets into this. I interviewed him for um, the book, like, the, you are what you love. Like, our habits form us, whether we realize it or not. And there are cultural liturgies all around us that are shaping us. They're shaping our children. Um, and what has happened in North America is because we have no liturgy. Uh, you see the emergence of Christian nationalism, all this other crazy stuff, because Christians will follow anything else because they've been formed, um, you know, in in other ways. And so, again, what liturgy does is it forms us. It brings together a holistic framework. And so, go ahead. I say you're taking names right now. You're doing this is good. This is good. I think you've thought through this a little bit, bro. (laughs) So, so one of the challenges is, again, so if you divorce theology from the liturgy, what do you get? You get progressive kind of liberal mainline that yeah they got cathedrals they got beautiful buildings but you go in and it's just like where's the gospel they mm-hmm. they they subtracted the gospel from the liturgy wow. and so again what you have with kind of the high reform movement oftentimes is the theology without the liturgy mm-hmm. and so what i'm saying is the lit- liturgical matrix is bringing together good theology good worship and good praxis you are like you are I mean, you're writing books you're like writing multiple books and articles not just like as an anglican or as someone who's liturgical but like trying to like rope rope some peeps in clearly yeah. it's like something that's it's really yielded something for you like at the end of the day what what has it like yielded for you like as you're as a christian or a or a dad or a you know a husband or whatever like what, yeah. what prompts you to like, like kind of shout it from the u- rooftops and be yeah. willing to like chat with me? Yeah, no, I mean, I believe in this. I mean, it's changed my life. You know, it's kind of like what you said. It's kind of like, where's this stuff been hiding? <laughs> What's that? It's kind of like I fell down a rabbit hole. And at first I was like, when you first kind of start embracing and when you first start kind of embracing tradition, you're like, am I going to become Roman Catholic? Like you're scared. Like I've, I've thought yeah. I was in the closet, you know? And, um, and so as I kind of came out, if you will, yeah, what I've yeah. discovered is there are thousands, I believe thousands of others who are on this journey mm. and they don't know other people are on the journey. Mm. And that's what I do in Ever Ancient, Ever New. I tell the story of, I interviewed hundreds of young adults mm. from all different backgrounds. Mm. Um, and it, it's non-biased. I'm, I'm not, you know, there are some that have become Roman Catholic. You know, I tried to paint the this broad overview mm-hmm. and to tell the story that, Hey, we're, you know, the day of like, um, you know, I, I think the day of call me, I don't know, but I think the day of like the mega church Christianity, I, I think it's over. I think young adults are hungry for substance. Um, uh, but they're also hungry for the, the, you know, the form of liturgy, they're hungry for formation. They're wanting to go deep um, not just intellectually, but they're wanting practices. They're wanting, yeah. that's the other thing is the liturgical tradition, the great tradition of the church gives us practices to, to practice the other, you know, six days of the week, 
You know, it's not just about the Sunday morning liturgy. And that's where I talk about this, like liturgy is corporate, but it's also provides us with, with individual liturgical practices, like liturgical prayers and habits and things that, again, kind of back to Jamie Smith's kind of stuff around kind of the, the spiritual practices and habits. You are what you love, like what we do forms us. And there's this great tradition that has been passed down and it belongs to us. I think that's my thing is I like to use the language of it's kind of like the treasure chest of church history. It's kind of like stumbling into your grandparents' attic and like opening a chest and finding this really cool stuff that belongs to you. Um, this doesn't belong to just one tradition. It's we can claim it. Wow. And I think Packer and others, that's what they would say. I think that's really a lot of like, so I feel like I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of, of, yeah. of many others who, who've kind of experienced this, you know, boomers, there were some prophetic voices again in the seventies, eighties, nineties were writing about this among evangelicals, but they didn't go far enough. Um, and what I'm trying to say is we need a holistic framework and I'm also connecting it to mission. Um, I just literally have, finishing the final touches of a book for InterVarsity called Liturgy and Mission, because what we believe, how we worship, forms our lives as Christians and how we live out our faith in the public uh, spheres of the world and the marketplace. So if I'm thinking of like liturgy or certain, say certain prayers or whatever, and I'm thinking of like a Monday through Saturday sort of thing, how is this not just like busy work? Like how does... How does this touch in my like driving my kids to piano practice or having a hike on a Saturday other than just filling up the time, right? Yeah. With just some religious fodder. Yeah, it gives you a framework. So I think this is what I love about it. I've got a little book. Um, so I've published with a number of publishers, you know. Um, so I've got um, Seedbed is a publisher I publish with. You know, I've got IVP, Zondervan, um, I like, I like diversification there. Um, but so I've done a lot of really neat little resources with a publisher called Seedbed. And um, uh, I've done these little prayer books um, that are little cardboard, they're scout books. You put them in your pocket. You could, they're like Baptist tracks, but they're like liturgy for ordinary people realize what they are. They're a little, you know, they're a couple bucks. Churches will buy them up in the hundreds. Like literally um, my little red prayer book has sold tens of thousands of copies. And what it does, what I've tried to do in these little books is it's kind of, you know, again, it's kind of like, call me a liturgical evangelist. You know, it's kind of like, these are prayers that, hey, you put them in your pocket, you take them on the go, like liturgy, uh, you know, for ordinary people in essence. And um, so what I've done is, you know, I kind of focus on, keep it simple, like morning and evening prayer. Um, you know, if you're doing it together as a family, like just keep it simple. Like, and so what my most recent seedbed things called living room liturgy, it's just a book of prayers for families, for the home. And I just selfishly put together a prayer book that I would use, you know, there's liturgies for, like you said, the pet, there's liturgies for every year during um, Christmas time. I'm always like, all right, I'm, I've got to pull together some stuff for Advent candles, you know, for the Advent wreath. Well, I just put it in there, you know, so there's prayers for the church year. There's prayers for special occasions There's prayers for ordinary times. There's also prayers for um, times of challenge and difficulty, you know, like how do you pray in a pandemic, you know? And so I just, 
I, I kind of finalized this in my closet last March, you know, as I was kind of, as I was kind of working from home myself. And um, so, yeah, I think keep it simple as you're trying to integrate it, um, you know, do it around the table, find, you know, ordinary spaces of the home, you know, like, again, liturgy doesn't have to be stuffy, doesn't have to be kind of this highbrow. I think the whole point of it is so everybody, going back to the reformational understanding of liturgy and theology and the Bible is, so everyone can have access to these prayers and to the scriptures ultimately. You know, that's, that's again, the liturgy is going to be for a lot of people who experience genuine liturgy, they're overwhelmed at the scriptures that are being read. You're going to get, if you go to a liturgical church, you're going to get an Old Testament reading, a psalm reading, a gospel reading, an epistle reading. You're going to be immersed in scripture. A lot of people come out and they're like, oh, that was too much word. I'm like, I thought you were evangelical. <laughs> you know? uh, I think, hey, I think Advent is like, was the just like Driscoll and Piper were like the gate and Spurgeon were like the gateway to young restless reform. I think practicing yep. Advent was yep. the gateway to people like yep. jiving with liturgy and whatnot. Like we do that. And it's like the highlight of our year. I love when that happens. And then I realize, well, I'm being like a liturgical, I guess right now, but anyways, um, did you want, did you want to say something to that? Yeah, I think Advent Lent, you know, I tell people that are just embracing it, like, how do we, you know, just keep it, start simple. So again, for, you know, I consult a lot of churches that are taking that journey, like, how do we take our churches on this journey? And I just say, hey, man, start simple. Start with Advent and Lent. Don't worry about all the other kind of crazy, you know, high church feasts and all that stuff and all the saints, like, keep it really simple. Advent and Lent are all about Jesus. I mean, really, they are. So Advent's the season of watching and waiting, preparing for the birth of Christ, the advent of Christ. Uh, and, and it prepares you for Christmas. And then when, man, Christmas hits, you're like, dude, you're so stoked. And then when Lent, 40 days. So when Easter shows up, sackcloth and ashes, you're just laying those away. And it's a season of feasting and celebrating. And so, again, I, th I think start small, you know, don't just start swinging incense and all that stuff. You know, keep it simple, keep it about Jesus, and you'll be good. Uh, we legit bought bells. We legit bought bells. Don't judge us. Okay, so are people free to pick and choose, like, liturgy and stay, say, Baptist or non-denominational or Presbyterian Methodist, or do they got to they gotta jump into Anglicanism full on? Yeah, no, I... So here's the danger. The answer is yes and no. Um, the danger is that you just kind of pick and choose and, hey, we're going to light a candle over here and say this prayer, and you don't understand the theology behind the liturgy. So that's where I would kind of push back on that. I would do, uh, I could recommend, you know, some books. Robert Weber is is one who I would really recommend. He um he wrote a lot of resources around. He he coined the phrase blended worship. He coined the phrase convergent worship and ancient future worship. He was just a, his whole vision was like, how do we help evangelicals get this stuff? I have a chapter in Ever Ancient Ever New on what is the liturgy. And uh, so basically there's a fourfold structure to all historic lit liturgies. It doesn't matter whether you're Lutheran, whether you're, you know, Anglican, Catholic, like 
the early church, there was a fourfold structure of like, there was a gathering, there was a hearing, we hear the word of God, then there's a sermon, there's preaching, then there's prayers, there's a confession. Uh, and at that point, after the sermon, there's the creed where we're affirming our faith together. Then there's a feasting or feeding at the table or celebrating, um, you know, it could be called different things. So we come to the table. So it's word and table. Uh, and then the fourth um, part is the sending out. It's the misa, the mass. The Latin mass means go, you are sent. And so uh, I like the fourfold structure. I think it can be contextualized. Um, and so, you know, my encouragement would be, you know, study up on the fourfold structure of the liturgy. And then, then regardless, you know, say you're coming from a Baptist or, you know, whatever background, then you could figure out how to contextualize it. So if you're Anglican, um, you're probably, you know, need to follow the prayer book stuff that, you know, of your bishop, because there are some kind of guidelines there that you're going to have with different traditions. But someone's, you're not going to go to jail, someone's not going to show up and, you know, the liturgy police aren't going to, I mean, you might have a member that's going to be like a liturgical Nazi if you start innovating. But Set. So again, you got to be careful that you're not trying to innovate and like, oh, we're going to make this sound cool or we're going to water this down. Again, I think the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican liturgy actually is really rich and accessible and can be adapted to a variety of contexts. I think that's the beauty of it. Uh, sorry. Um, so like when I last thought of Anglicanism, just as a denomination or whatever, this is what I thought of clerical callers, still kind of Catholic and theologically and socially liberal. So I want to ask you, what do most folks default like think when they think Anglicanism? Was that was my assumption kind of what you've noticed? Yeah, well, that's kind of more. Yeah. You know, Church of England, Episcopal Church probably is that um, global Anglicanism, the average the typical Anglican is a teenage African girl. If you say statistically, who is an Anglican? Uh, it's not some crazy high collared, you know, um, white liberal. It's actually an African teenager, you know, who's, you know, walking on foot to school. Um, so Anglicanism has this rich global current expression is a very global, you know, there's 80 million Anglicans around the world. And the majority of, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than the United States, England, and Canada combined. This is just Nigeria. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, the, the ACNA in the United States, Anglican Church in North America is a, a very conservative expression. Um, J.I. Packer was a part of ANIC, which is kind of the Canadian kind of version of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is kind of the stereotype that, you know, and in some, there may be some truth to this in some corners that it's kind of like the kind of the fundamentalist Angl Anglicans or kind of the, the very hyper conservative. Um, there are those, um, but it's, I would definitely define the ACNA as, as a conservative um, kind of expression of Anglicanism in the United States, but it's very diverse in terms of good diversity, I think. Um, sure. So yeah. what's the difference between like the church of Anglican, uh, the church of England 
Anglicans and like Episcopalians and how many like flavors or streams are there within <laughs> Anglicanism? Like I know there's like reformed Anglicanism. Yeah, I know yeah. that you are like kind of charismatic with a seatbelt, like you say. Yes. Yeah. As, yeah, yeah. as am I. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the other question is for those of us who um, like who want to maybe proceed with like, you know, I want to check out Anglicanism. Yeah. How do we know we're not we're not going to be roped into like the insane liberal one where there's like a practicing homosexual? Yeah. So, you know? yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah. So, again, again, I don't want to pit these two against each other. So I want to be careful here. Because you 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 have um, in the Episcopal Church, um, you you have very, I would say probably the majority are m- much more progressive and liberal leaning. Um, you do have, um, and I do have a number of friends that are in the Episcopal Church that are Orthodox, that are, you know, some are centrist, some are reformed. Um, you know, they're, you know, I think in terms of like Florida, Central Florida Episcopal Diocese, Texas, um, you know, Albany, New York, you know, there, there are places, there are Orthodox bastions still within the Episcopal Church. Um, but you do have a number who have moved in a very progressive, um, liberal kind of theological um, trajectory. So it just it's just is what it is. I mean, you, you can search the internet and find that. Um, okay. Again, the ACNA, you know what you're getting in the sense that it is, you know, all the congregations, clergy, priests, you know, you're not going to walk in and find yeah. someone kind of performing, you know, right. marrying, you know, a donkey and a horse or, you know, like they're, you know, they, you, you know, you're going to get orthodoxy. So within that, um, there are differences within the ACNA around churchmanship and mm-hmm. theology. So you're going to have your more reformed. Right. So again, the arguments are not liberal, progressive, hyper-conservative. It's more of divisions around, um, women's ordination is one of the divisive hot points um charismatic might be one expression the kind of more reformed kind of uh leaning and then you have your kind of more catholic anglo-catholic leaning so i would say those are the different kind of streams and there's spectrums you might call it the anglican spectrum you know might be a way to kind of uh, frame it a bit so so in some i think if we're interested, it's like the ACNA is probably like, and if we appreciate sort of orthodoxy and we might be coming from a reformed yeah. area, that might be, that might be the tree we, we bark up and sort of Google that. Yeah. So, so again, J.I. Packer was the chair of the Anglican Catechesis Task Force for the ACNA. Mm. So Packer actually was a founder, mm. an endorser of the ACNA movement. Mm-hmm. So you know what you're getting there. So if you're into Packer, ACNA is the place to be. Okay. Uh, and so I'd say get the prayer book. Start with the book of Co- start with the new 2019 book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, Crossway just published our um, Anglican Catechism, the new Anglican Catechism. It's rich. I mean, it's it's like three four hundred questions. Like it's it's pretty intense. Um, and Packer was the head of the catechesis task force. 
Now, again, the guy was 90 something years old, you know, he's, um, so, I mean, how hands-on, I don't know, but he definitely was instrumental in shaping some of the theological convictions. Nice. Yeah. So at least, you know, you're getting orthodoxy. Let's put it that way. So I'll link those things you had mentioned, but it's that, that catechism from the crossway. I think you said 2019, there's like, I think there's a recent IVP book of prayer. Is that, Yeah, I saw that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that probably a good, a good, it's like, yeah, it's, um, I don't have it, but I think it's probably based on kind of the 1662, which is yeah, kind of like, it is. you know, the funny thing is I tell people the, you know, you, your 1662 is kind of the, the King James equivalent, like it's the gold standard when you're right. looking back and trying, when you're doing like Bible trans, I parallel prayer books to like Bible translations. Mm-hmm. So 1662 is like the King James Bible, like mm-hmm. it's, you might not use it today, but you know that it's a legit, you know, it's kind of the gold standard. And um, the 1979 BCP is what a lot of people who've embraced Anglicanism uh, got their hands on and cut their teeth on. And the cadence is, be- there's, there's a lot of beautiful, you know, it, it's, it, it's a, it's a great little prayer book. It's a great prayer book. It's, however, it's the prayer book for the Episcopal church. So as people who've come out of the Episcopal Church, the ACNA for the last few years have been forming their own. And so 2019, they came out with the ACNA approved Book of Common Prayer. Okay. So okay. if you're looking it up, it's the 2019. I, I liken that to the ESV Bible. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a very <laughs> literal translation that's gonna kind of build on the, you know, because a lot of people look at this, you know, the NIV's kind of the, well. <laughs> You know, I don't know, you know, it's kind of, so that's kind of how s- some Anglicans will look at the 79 Book of Common Prayer with, totally. with suspicion, like some people look at the NIV. Yeah, yeah. So this has been super helpful. Final question for you, brother. Like, if, um, I think you said, get, get yourself a Book of Common Prayer. And if I were to, how do I start in that thing? Am I going to open it up and it's going to, and it's going to say, I'll have the leader read this, but I'm reading it on my own. So there's no leader to read. Like where, what's like, What's a yeah. start us on that journey? Yeah, it's um, you know, again, the beauty of the Book of Common Prayer is it's designed for liturgical worship, but it's also designed for private worship. So the morning and evening prayer, you just kind of personalize the pronouns, you know, right? Or you just say we, you know, and you say that absolution over yourself and you just kind of kind of personalize the language. Um, yeah. Well, and, thank you. you know, again, my little Simply Anglican book, it's, it's, a, it's a tight little maybe 150-page introduction that kind of gets into some of the current stuff and some of the mm-hmm. diversities. And, you know, I talk about the via media, like how do we find this kind of right. space where we can kind of get along and not be angry and divide? Yeah. You know, that's, that's when, one of the things we, the church just keeps dividing over and over again. And somehow we got to, you know, my thing is, you know, we might have some different uh, theological, you know, we need, you know, I, I think we can find these points where we can find commonality and say we can, as long as we're orthodox and we can agree on the center, um, we can be a part of the same church without splitting, you mm-hmm. know. So we've been talking with with Winfield Bevins. Um, the book is Simply Anglican, An Ancient Faith for Today's World, which was released by Anglican Compass 2020. Like I said, um, 
the, the good folks over there at anglingencompass.com are going to give, give a copy away. So just subscribe and then let us know you did. You could follow um, Winfield on Twitter at Winfield Bevins, Winfield Bevins. And then you could check out his personal website, winfieldbevins.com. We'll link them up. Brother, appreciate your time. Hey, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to leave.